0: A year ago this week, protests against racial injustice sprang up in cities nationwide, and Portland was no different. Iconic images of thousands of protesters marching across Portland bridges made national headlines, and Portlanders took to the streets night after night. What's the state of that movement in Portland today? And has the message been lost amid headlines about broken windows and vandalism? And what do protesters think about those headlines? Are they fair? I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Up next, reporter Catalina Gaitan tried to answer those difficult questions. Gaitan spoke with protesters and current and former politicians to take the pulse one year after George Floyd's name suddenly became a national and international rallying cry. Gaitan was born and raised in Portland and covered the protests for countless nights, first as a freelancer for the Portland Mercury and for the Oregonian. We talked about what sticks with them from those long, tear-gas-filled nights, how it's fundamentally changed their memories of some parts of the city, and much more. Here's our conversation. Catalina Gaitan, thanks so much for coming on the show today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So we keep hitting these milestones that are sort of unbelievable in terms of the passage of time, and May 25th marks one year since George Floyd was killed, murdered by Derek Chauvin, sparking a national racial justice movement that's still reverberating. And I'm just wondering, where do things stand today with that movement in Portland?
1: Well, protests are still ongoing today. They've evolved a lot since they began last summer. Um, last summer, we were at the beginning of the pandemic and there were tens of thousands of people out on the street every single night. There were daytime marches and car caravans throughout the entire city. There were multiple events every single day for months. But as we moved into the fall and winter those protests started to shift and that doesn't mean they stopped. Protesters just started really focusing on mutual aid. So when wildfires broke out in September, lots of protesters started focusing on getting supplies and donations to people who had lost their homes. And as we got into the winter, people were focusing on taking care of Portland's houseless community with sleeping bag drives and food donations. And that's still happening. There's been this huge growth in the amount of people in Portland participating Participating in mutual aid efforts, so volunteering their time and skills to people in need, and that would not have happened without the protest movement of last summer, which brought together so many thousands of Portlanders and Oregonians who shared this interest in wanting to make a difference and wanting to see change. But in terms of people protesting, there remains a smaller core group of dedicated protesters. And that group is sometimes a couple dozen people and sometimes a couple hundred people who are protesting any injustices they see happening specifically in Portland Or they're protesting in solidarity with other movements happening around the country or the world. So one night it can be protesting outside the ICE facility in South Portland. And the Mm -hmm. next day it's protesting in solidarity with Palestine. So a lot of the focus by elected officials and the media in Portland on today's protest movement has been on property damage. Like protesters lighting fires or breaking windows. But that's actually a really small subset of the protesters it's only a few people who sometimes splinter off from the larger group to do that. And sometimes there's even folks within the crowd of protesters who ask those people to stop, especially when it's damaging a building that's important to the community. Um, And I think that's actually a really important thing to understand about today's protest movement, uh, that there are no leaders, there is no Mm -hmm. one central set of guidelines or standards shared by everyone. Yes, people gather sometimes for a specific cause, but each person brings their own personal reason for protesting and their own set of guidelines to follow. So if you're looking for an answer for why people are still protesting today, you have to ask every protester. And if you're (laughs) looking for a leader of the entire protest movement, you're not going to find one.
0: All right. Well, you talked to um, many people who who are still active um, and are protesting. And maybe that's a good way to to hear from one of those folks. Uh, This is Callie Riley um, with Unite Oregon talking about why um, people are still protesting.
2: We won some modest defunding of Portland police. But as you say, you know, ultimately, most of our demands were not met. And in many ways, you know, the issues are still there. And then you add on top of that, a year off and on of brutalizing protesters with uh, just extreme violence on the part of the police. It's, it's frustrating. I think, you know, it's really frustrating to be told that there are certain right ways to protest and certain wrong ways to protest, but then, you know, organizations like Unite Oregon engage in what are deemed by people in power to be good forms of protest. And I want to be really clear. I'm not endorsing the view that there is good protest and bad protest. Um, I just want to be really clear there But in as much as we were engaging in tactics that are deemed legitimate by city council, you know, to tell us, we'll come to city council, make the case, have people testify. And we did that at the city council. Um, In particular, Mayor Wheeler rejected that. And so it's, you know, it's really frustrating for me as an organizer to be told that there's certain ways to win our demands. And then we go and do those things and we're ignored and dismissed out of hand.
0: So what's your reaction to Callie's point here?
1: Yeah, what Callie is saying is something that I heard a few people say, which is that they feel like Portland was in this really unique situation last summer where our city council could make big changes to the way the city handles public safety and policing and issues around systemic racism. And there was a sense that if city council wasn't going to listen to the demands of tens of thousands of people protesting in the streets every night, they might listen when hundreds of people sign up to testify for hours in front of city council in support of the same set of demands, mainly to significantly divest from Portland police And while the city did make pretty large budget cuts to the police department, it was not even close to the amount organizations like Unite Oregon and Imagine Black, which formerly the Portland African American Leadership Forum, were aiming for. And they felt like this was a really big missed opportunity for meaningful change. And when the proposed budget for next fiscal year came up again last month, people signed up in droves to testify and rally behind similar calls to divest from Portland police and invest in programs like Portland Street Response. But again, their demands weren't really met in the budget that was approved. And yes, some cuts were made to the police budget, but Portland Street Response wasn't expanded beyond its pilot program in lens, despite there being so much vocal support from Portlanders to invest in that program, instead Mm -hmm. of, for example, adding 30 unarmed police officers to the police department.
0: And Street Response is the program uh, uh, led by Commissioner Joanne Hardesty, which is um, a model that is supposed to send um, unarmed um, social workers out to people in crisis, um, which, uh, you know, Unfortunately, did not happen um, in Lens Park earlier earlier this year, we should note. Catalina, I'm, I'm curious. You reached out to numerous people to take the pulse right now. And beyond, you know, uh, Callie Riley, can you give a sense of who you spoke with and what they had to say about kind of this moment in time and where we're at one year after George Floyd was murdered?
1: I spoke with nine different people and I tried to talk to people across this political spectrum. Um, like you said, I wanted to sort of take the pulse in a way, asking people how they felt about the amount of progress the city has made since last year in achieving racial justice and ending police brutality, and also if they think the protests have been effective at achieving that goal. So I spoke with a couple of former and current elected leaders, Portland City Commissioner Mingus Maps and former state senator Margaret Carter, Mm -hmm. who both said that this quote-unquote violence during protests isn't furthering the goal. But Senator Carter was a lot more focused on violence perpetrated by law enforcement in Oregon against Black Oregonians and Portlanders, both historically and continuing today. Whereas Commissioner Maps was really focused on getting protesters to stop engaging in things like arson and breaking windows, which he said actually hurt the communities that protesters say they're trying to protect um, kind of across the political spectrum there. I also spoke with an Afro-Indigenous protester who has been out there since the very beginning and continues mm-hmm. going out there. And she found the question around that, quote-unquote, violence really laughable. Um, the violence and brutality, she says, protesters have experienced at the hands of Portland police and law enforcement in Portland during these protests has been extreme. And you can't compare a protester being shot in the head with an impact munition or a protester having their arm broken to someone throwing a brick through a window, she said, they are just not the same. And that's something I heard from multiple people I interviewed, um, is that elected leaders like Mayor Wheeler and Commissioner Maps labeling property damage as violence is a way to distract people from the violence perpetrated by law enforcement officials against protesters. And it's a way to turn public opinion against protesters who feel like they're left with no other option, but to continue protesting because they feel like they haven't seen any meaningful changes happen since they started going out last summer.
0: I'm wondering your perspective as someone who has covered this movement extensively, um, both for the Oregonian and freelancing and for the for the Mercury. How do you think um, just the the ebb and flow of how things have gone over the last year has has uh, affected public sentiment, and how much do you think that, that the movement has changed over time? Because you, you were out there a lot uh, last year and this year.
1: Mm-hmm. The protest movement has really waxed and waned. It's been a year. So in the beginning, there was this huge outpouring of support, and I think public opinion was a lot more supportive Uh, Because people from all walks of life and people sharing a really diverse um, political perspective Mm -hmm. were represented in the people protesting out there. But as time went on, some of that momentum started to slow. And the people who were able to continue going out were kind of more of a core set of protesters. It became more visible because the group was smaller the small subset of people who are doing property damage really became the focus just because they were more prominent in a crowd of 50 than a crowd right. of 5,000.
0: Right. Um, and when I, Damien Lillard isn't at the front of the line, holding hands, you know, walking across Burnside bridge, it's a different feel, right? When it's not 10, 15,000 people, it's, it's a lot smaller.
1: Exactly. And Like I said, in the beginning, there were people lining the streets every single day, lining busy streets, holding up signs that read Black Lives Matter, messages in support of divesting from Portland police, uh, holding those signs up to passing traffic and people would honk and it would just be all day, every day, no matter where you drove in Portland. There were these groups on the street during the daytime and they were Elderly folks and people with disabilities who couldn't make it out to protest at night, and children and their families. So it was this really diverse crowd of protesters, and there were car caravans for people who were not able to go out because of coronavirus, and they right. could be right. in a crowd of people. It was just this widespread support, and over time, it's just it's just not sustainable at that de- at that degree. At the beginning, for a few months, it was, but. People have lives and the pandemic has been so hard on people um, that just wasn't sustainable for a year. And so what we're left behind with is people who either are so motivated that they'll continue going out or people with mm-hmm. the access to continue going out and public sentiment, I think because a lot of those folks have been labeled as quote unquote, white anarchists and anarchist mob and as violent that... Yeah public opinion has really been swayed to believe that these protesters are no longer aligned with the values that they originally had last summer. And I think if you spoke with the protesters, you would get a different sense that these people are just extremely frustrated at the lack of change that they've seen happen since last year. And they feel like at this point, they can't stop protesting because it's the only way they feel like elected leaders will listen to them.
0: You mentioned the white anarchist piece of this, and here's another person you spoke with, Jasmine Casanova-Dean, uh, talking about that point.
1: I don't believe that they are white anarchists. I believe that they are people who are upset that nothing's been done and nothing's been saying it's going to get done. And they're showing their frustration. Property damage isn't violent because a building isn't a person, so it is not violent. What the city council is doing, in my own personal opinion, is they're putting fear into people to try to justify why we need policing, and that's not appropriate, and I don't think that's what the city council should do.
0: So, uh, Catalina, how, how many nights did you cover protests in 2020 or this year? I don't know if you've if tallied that. And what moments um, or images stick with you when you think back on, on, uh, on those nights? I
1: definitely don't have a tally. Uh, I wish I had kept count. But at the beginning, I felt like I was going out at least a few times a week, uh, sometimes during the day, sometimes at night. As time went on, it became more consistently going out at night for the direct action protests and marches. Something that really sticks with me is the tear gas. I'm from Portland, born and raised, and I don't think I will ever be able to unsee some of the things that I saw while covering these protests. I walk by streets that I've walked by my entire life, and there are memories imprinted on those streets that I cannot forget of watching. Just an entire squad of multiple police vehicles race up the streets, sirens blaring to have police officers in riot gear jump out of of vans and tackle a single protester who's just dressed in plain clothes, wearing a skirt and a tank top, carrying a drum and seeing that person tackled to the ground and walking through streets of neighborhoods with family homes where there are people looking out through their front windows um, and just experiencing breathing in tear gas. There's this dissonance when you're walking through this like beautiful tree lined neighborhood of Portland and there's children's toys on the front yard. And then you're putting on a respirator. It reminds you of like a video game, militarized police officers spraying tear gas at you. And when you're in that kind of chaos I think it's it would be pretty hard to distinguish between a journalist or a reporter and a protester. So you're kind of lost within this chaos of a cloud of tear gas and everyone's coughing and there's screaming and there's police officers shouting really aggressively. And even though as a journalist, you're there to do your job and you're focusing, it's hard not to be afraid for the people around you, for yourself for the people in their homes, where tear gas is seeping in, for anyone who might be outside, who's houseless. So just as someone who's been here, who's from here, born and raised, it's really difficult to walk down these same streets and not feel triggered, to not have that fear response come back up of being like, wow, when I was here, I saw someone get tackled and their face smashed into the ground, or here's where I couldn't breathe and was choking and gagging because of I couldn't get my respirator on quickly enough, which was all our Portland police doing
0: that. Yeah. And it yeah. could, you know, those those streets, uh, it could be downtown, right? It could be in the downtown core and uh, across from the Justice Center or the federal courthouse, or it could have been, you know, on the east side on, on Burnside, or it could have been in North Portland, right? There's uh, it, it wasn't just one section of the town where you have those memories.
1: Yeah. And I think um, if you talk to residents of Portland, I think that's something that's pretty unique about this year was that it wasn't restricted to downtown Portland, that people living, going about their everyday lives became involved in the protests, whether they wanted to or not.
0: We'll take a break and come back and hear more from Catalina Gaetan, reporter for The Oregonian and Oregon Life. Okay, so as this protest movement kicked off really in earnest a year ago, there were demands about uh, changes they'd like to see in the police system, um, and those continue today. Here's Michelle Yemaya Benson talking about what changes they'd like to see in the police system.
1: Thrashing the entire system and creating a new one, the ways that it shouldn't been from jump, is what I would view the system completely. Not broken, it's made that way. So we need to do away with the old and answer the new. I think for the policing piece specifically, I think it would be very community-led protection and a lot of training, a lot, a lot of training, a lot of background checks, a lot of psychological analyzing and testing would go into it.
0: So, Catalina, it doesn't feel like we are close to that reality today of a total defunding police. What happened? You you alluded to this a little bit, but what happened in the most recent budget that sort of underscores that point?
1: I think the sticking point for a lot of people was the decision not to expand the Portland Street Response Program. Unite Oregon hired an analyst to go over the police budget last fall during the fall bump and they pinpointed programs that could be divested from and where that money could go instead. And they came back to city council with these numbers broken down because they believed they were told um, by some people within city council that we need proof like this is unprecedented. We can't just cut $50 million from the police budget like that, just because you asked us to. Mm -hmm. And so organizations like Unite Oregon and Imagine Black, they did the work to show, okay, this is where the money can come out of and this is where it can go instead. And when it came down to voting on the budget, the budget that was passed still did not include those cuts that they were wanting. So when it came to this budget that we just passed a few weeks ago, Unite Oregon wanted $35 million cut from the police department's budget that didn't happen. Uh, They did make cuts, but they also added 30 unarmed police officers. Um, They invested in some other police uh, facets of the police budget and Joanne Hardesty's amendment to expand Portland street response and invest in that did not get approved. Um, She and commissioner Carmen Rubio both wanted to pass it, but Commissioners Dan Bryan, Mingus Maps, and Mayor Ted Wheeler voted against it. And that, I think, in the wake of the police fatally shooting Robert Delgado in Lentz Park, Mm -hmm. it felt like to a lot of people that Portland City Council was not interested in responding in big ways. They said that they wanted to do more research. They wanted to see more evidence that Portland Street Response was working. And protesters and organizers countered that by saying, there are so many examples of the police department not working, not doing the job of protecting or serving the way it's supposed to. And if a group like Portland Street Response had responded to Lentz Park instead, then maybe Robert Delgado would not have been killed. The sticking point with that is that Portland street response is not supposed to respond when there's a weapon. And so Portland police would have been called anyway. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a, a sticking point where it's like, even if Portland street response was called, they would have had to call for backup because there was a threat of a weapon because Robert Delgado was holding um, a replica gun. So it wasn't real. It could not shoot anyone, but they wouldn't have been able to know that. So there's, there's just complications here of what the right thing is to do, but generally, I think um, people are just tired of Portlanders and Oregonians being maimed or be- being fatally killed, fatally shot or wounded uh, by police officers and saying, this really armed militarized police force is not the way we solve policing. It doesn't seem like to them Portland City Council is listening.
0: I'm curious what you heard from, uh, from particularly the folks who are active in the protest movement, uh, about gun violence, um, in Portland overall. Uh, I mean, we'd be remiss in not mentioning that, you know, the homicide rate, um, we're on pace to have a, an extremely deadly year in the city. And I think, you know, ultimately a lot of folks would be in agreement that. One of the core missions of of uh, police and law enforcement officers should be to to work on issues like like that. I know that the gun violence um, re- reduction team or the, the revised team is is still in flux. But I'm I'm just curious what, if anything, if that came up in your conversations. Um, you know, we're having this homicide uh, rate that's really kind of terrifying a lot of communities. And um, I'm wondering what they make of the police response to that.
1: One person that I spoke to was Max Smith, who is the editor of We Out Here magazine. Uh, He's a journalist and he's been one of the most prominent activists uh, since last summer. He's also a protester. We didn't specifically talk about gun violence in Portland. We talked more about policing. But I think he would argue that gun violence is a symptom of larger problems that Portland is facing, that being an over-policing and criminalization of houselessness, of people being Black, of discrimination and oppression, um, and not investing in communities of color. Um, and something that he said was, what's happening now is that crime is not getting any better because we have cops. In fact, it's getting worse because we're not investing in things that actually matter. We're only investing in trying to chase the symptoms so at some point, you have to stop chasing the symptoms and actually just fix the problems. And unfortunately, if the cops are taking all the budgets to chase the system, then we've gone too far. It's a matter of scaling back and rolling back and seeing where we can go from there. But right now, it's just not a working situation. So again, chasing the symptoms.
0: Yeah. Is- so it's another, it's another example of how the system isn't working. The fact that we're having, um, that so many Portlanders or people coming to Portland are, are killing people.
1: Yeah. I think um, there's a framing of gun violence as an individual decision to shoot someone else and it's not taking into account all of the symptoms, all of the all of the levels of maybe oppression or systemic racism that lead someone to uh, gun violence.
0: Do you have any sort of consensus from the nine people you spoke with? I know it was across, uh, you know, whether they're politicians or um, involved in this movement, but does it feel like we've made progress in Portland or elsewhere or or, uh, just kind of around the edges or is it just kind of a status quo? What's What's the sense?
1: There was no one consensus shared by everyone. The only thing that was really shared in common was a belief that these protests would continue. Whether or not those people, the people I interviewed, approved of the way protesters were protesting, the consensus was that they're not going to stop because protesters are not satisfied with the change that they've seen. One of the most poignant moments was when I spoke with Senator Margaret Carter, who served for almost three decades in the Oregon State Legislature and Senate. When I asked her, do you feel like there's been a significant change since you were in office? And she paused and Pretty sadly, she started speaking and she said, you know, I hate to say it, but I haven't seen any real change, any big changes in policy around policing since I left office. And just to hear that from someone, she's 85, she had so much experience both as a Black woman in Portland and Oregon and as an elected official, to hear that was kind of remarkable. And I think in general, while people disagree on protest tactics, like Margaret Carter was very against sort of the violence that she said that she saw on the streets of Portland between protesters and police. Um, I think something that everyone could agree on was that there still needs, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to rebuild trust between law enforcement and the Black community, Indigenous community and communities of color in Portland.
0: Well, thank you so much for uh, all your reporting on the ground and uh, and from, from your home, uh, Catalina, and uh, thanks for coming on the show to talk about it.
1: Thank you, Andrew.
0: Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. Catalina's story on the protest movement will be online and in the Oregonian later this week. I'll drop a link in the episode notes after it posts. If you like this show, leave us a five-star rating and review in an Apple Podcasts or tell a friend help spread the word. The best way to support our journalism is with a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.